I want to pull back the curtain as I begin this morning, talk a little bit about preaching. In the old world, the king would send out messengers from his throne room, or the queen from her throne room. The monarch didn't have to physically be somewhere for the presence or their presence to be felt. They'd write down their words, or, or if they're really good, they'd have a scribe write down their words. They didn't even have to lift a pen. And the letter would then be folded or rolled, and then they would take a little bit of wax, and they would take the hot wax and put it on the letter. And then they would take their ring, and they would put their seal upon the wax to impress the message and then they would give that message to a messenger and that messenger would go. The messenger had one job, one, one, one job to deliver the message as written. The messenger's job was not to make the message easier to digest for the hearer. The messenger's job was not to just give a summation of the message. And I can promise you the messenger's job was not to choose any topic that they desired and then to fit the words of the king into their own agenda. The messenger's job was simple. Deliver the message. Any deviation from the message, any part of the message, any part the messenger wanted to take out or was uncomfortable with, the messenger did not get to change. Even if they delivered the message to a foreign power or a hostile audience, his job, say it with me, was to deliver the message. Paul's clarity to the job of Timothy as Timothy took over the church of Ephesus as pastor was clear. Timothy as preacher was to do one thing, to preach the word, to deliver the message. Let's look at 2 Timothy 4 real quick. I charge you, this is Paul to Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is, judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Preach the word. Timothy didn't get to change the word. He didn't get to soften the word. He didn't get to have his own agenda and fit the words of the king into it. His job was to preach the word. It's my job. That's my job. When I get up here on Sundays... I get to deliver the message of the king. Far too many preachers, especially in America, play the bard. They aren't messengers of the king. They're the jester with the king's name inscribed across their chest in crayon. They do a little song and dance routine in the name of the king. And they might even cleverly rewrite hard sayings or ignore them altogether. And the word of God makes clear that they will be judged severely. James 3.1 Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that he, we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. 
Let me be clear. Everyone likes the bard. It was my favorite part of the Renaissance Festival, right? Everyone likes the bard. Everyone likes the jester. Why? Well, let's look at the opposite. The Bible tells us that there will be those who are the king's messengers who are killed for delivering the message. And there have been many preachers and proclaimers and apostles and missionaries who have died for delivering the message of the king. Now, I want to be liked. I could even go as far as saying I want to be loved because I'm human. I want you and everyone else to like me. But the moment I desire the affection of man over the affection of God, then I fall into idolatry and will become a bard over a messenger. One of the reasons I preach expositorily is to protect myself from this danger. I'm not saying you can't preach differently. There are many preachers that preach differently and their task is still set before them by God. I simply preach expositorily because what I, what I feel I might be tempted to do if I didn't. What does it mean to preach expositorily? We just walk through books of the Bible together. You know what next week's passage is? The next verse. That's it. If you ever want a preview, jump ahead. The reason I do this is because it forces me to confront hard passages and it forces you to confront hard passages as a congregation in a world obsessed with comfort. We get to deal with the hard things. Today's passage is one of the very hard passages to preach from scripture. I would rather skip it, if I'm being frank, or maybe just rebrand it, put it in the October's Horrors of the Bible church series. But I'm called to preach the word. Now, I'm not the only one with a task though. As you come here this morning, you have a task as well. If I'm called to preach the word, what are you called to do? You're called to be hearers and doers of the word. Book of James makes that clear. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he's like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, doer who acts, will be blessed in his doing. You are called to be hearers and doers of the word. Hearers and doers of the word. So in light of today's very hard passage, I promise to preach the word. I simply ask for you to do and hear, or hear and do. I'll do the same. I have to do the exact same thing, even as a preacher. I have to hear and do. Today's passage should be a Christian's most frightening passage. It should be a fear to consider for all of mankind. Here's my worry. For, for too many, for far too many, 
These words that we will speak today will sneak up on them far too late. May it not be far too late for you. Stand with me for the reading of the word of God. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. You may be seated. Father God, we come to you today in a hard warning from the lips of the Son of God. Lord, I ask that you would move in our lives this morning, that you would challenge us. You would have us consider this passage afresh this morning, and we would not take for granted the very name of the Lord. Your son's name I pray, amen. Lord, Lord. A double calling is used at the high points of scripture specifically in the Old Testament, but then again in the New, to stress moments of decision, moments of importance, moments where our hearts may skip a beat or our eyes widen. In Abraham's day, Abraham was asked to do the unthinkable, and that was to sacrifice his son atop of a mountain. And so he walked up that mountain with his son and a bundle of sticks. And in a testing of his faith, he even raised the knife to heaven. And before he plunged that knife into the heart of his son, he heard the words, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the child. In that moment of decision, God called to his child, Abraham, a double call. Abraham, Abraham. On another hill, on another mountain, with another shepherd, Moses wandered. Having lost his former life, taken up to a new distant country, he did not know what was to come. He felt alone and abandoned, but suddenly there was a bush that burned without being consumed. And he heard the words that would change the direction of the rest of his life. Moses, Moses, take your sandals off. For your feet are on the place of holy ground. Hundreds of years later, a child would be dedicated at a temple, and he would grow up in that temple. He would serve in that temple, and one night he heard his name called Samuel. And he did not know who was calling his name, and he got up to bother his master over and over again until he heard the double call of Samuel, Samuel. It is I, the Lord. Fast forward to the New Testament. There are two women serving in a household. Well, one of them is serving. The other one is listening intently at the feet of the master. The other one is anxious beyond all measure because there's too much to do at the house with too many people there, and someone's got to get the job done. Until she hears the voice of her Savior go, Martha, 
Martha. And that same Savior, not too many weeks later, would not only double call a name, but the name of a city as he looked upon Jerusalem. As he looked upon a whole people who had abandoned their God, who had betrayed the trust of their, um, their creator and savior. And he would look at the corruption and he would weep. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Then again, as Peter tries to stand up to Jesus, stating that I, God, will never abandon you. Jesus looked into his eyes and said, Simon, Simon. And then as Jesus was about to die, as he was on the cross, and the wrath of God was upon him to die for the sins of the world, you can hear him say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A double calling is used at the high moments of scripture, distress moments of decision, moments of importance, moment where your heart skips a beat and your eyes widen. And in the text today, we see such a moment. Verse 22 tells us the time on that day, which is a reference to the day of judgment that will come for all of mankind. On that day, on that day, there will be people who come to the throne room of God and in a moment will utter the words, Lord, Lord. Well, what's in a title? What's in a title? Lord, Lord carries this idea of master, leader of king, but it's clear from the context that the people that are exposing these, these words from their mouth Lord, Lord, it is only a description. It is only a title for them. They might use the title, but they never treated him as Lord of their lives. We need to be reminded of this. The demons believe all true things about Jesus. The demons, I would argue, probably quote scripture than many of us in this room. But the difference between a true Christian and a demon is that one uses a title because that's what Jesus is. And the other uses a title because that's how they treat Jesus. The title causes them to live differently. Look at the question verse 21 is asking. Who enters the kingdom of heaven? That's verse 21. Who enters? The one who does the will of my father. It's easy to miss because we're back in Matthew for the first time again. But this is the first time we hear the term, my father, in the book of Matthew. It's the first time that we see Jesus equating himself in this way with his father in heaven. And the one who does the will of his father will enter heaven. Well, we have to ask the question then, what is the will of the father? The answer is repentance and faith. This is what differentiates the false convert from a true one. And this is where all of us need to dig beneath the surface this morning. Have you repented? Have you put your trust in Jesus? And we will do this by looking at the ways in which people think they have, but really they have done no such thing. 
Let's look at the first idea. Believe the right things. Matthew 7, 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? This is the idea of believing the right things. I've had several friends find their spouses online. Okay, I'm actually not against online dating. It does, I think, is a gatekeeper for crazy sometime. But I'm told this is how it works, right? You get on a website, you fill out information about yourself, you throw on some, a couple good pictures, not the bad ones, and you click submit, and then it goes out into the interweb for all the world to see. Well, at least the ones that are paying for the matchmaking service. And we would all say, as if you were looking at one of those profiles, that you now know about someone. You know about their likes and their dislikes and about what they look like, because Photoshop is a demon on these sites, right? About, but none of us would ever claim, I know these individuals based on a profile. Here's my fear. Many of us know about Jesus, but we don't know Jesus. That's the crux of the warning. Jesus says here that there will be those in history of the church who confess the deity of Christ, Lord, Lord, but who will have never have entered into a true personal relationship with him. We talked about wolves in the pulpit last week. And that warning was directed towards leaders. Today's warning is for the men and women who sit in the pews of the local church for years, firmly believing that Christ is God and that he died on the cross and even clinging to the promises of eternal hope. And yet, they have never come to a place in their lives where they trust the name of Jesus as Savior. They use the title, they even believe the title, but it has no bearing on how they live their lives, because there's been no new birth. The great reformer Martin Luther is a perfect case and point for this. Martin was a member of the priesthood. Martin knew the Greek and Hebrew. Martin taught classes in seminaries from books of the Bible. But Martin would say that that whole portion of his life, he never knew God. He never had a personal relationship with God. He knew about him, but he didn't know him. He admits that he needed to get to a place in his life where he knew him personally. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, Jesus was God but not his God. Jesus was Lord, but not his Lord. Jesus was Savior, but not his Savior. When Martin Luther needed to do was confront Jesus personally. For you to be hearers and doers of the word this morning, I'm going to ask, and I feel like I need to give you the space to call out to God to do just that. Ask the Lord to reveal the state of your own heart to see where you are at in your relationship with the Lord. Have you given your life to Jesus? Or do you just know about him? 
I'm going to take the next few moments. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to give you the next few, and then I'll give you a few moments to personally pray that same prayer to the Lord. Back your heads with me. Father God, we're in a space this morning in which the word of God is being proclaimed clearly, where the words of Jesus are being proclaimed clearly, and it would behoove us as hearers and doers of the word to consider it. Do we know you? Lord, this is, this is a heart barometer that I can't, I can't go up and check someone's temperature on. This is a personal question. And you have people this morning that are asking that personal question. May you answer it for them this morning. Take the next few minutes, church, hearers, to do just that. Ask the Lord to reveal where you are at with him. Amen. The verse continues. Matthew 7, 22. On that day, many would say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and, and do many mighty works in your name? See, it's not only about believing the right things. It's do all the right things. Do we do all the right things? Believing all the right things is not the only area which produces false converts. False conversions. The second area is works. Here is the scary thing about the human heart, okay? Some of you know this very well. Others of you, this is a new concept, but it says it in the Bible over and over again, so you should be aware of it. The human heart's deceitful. It's deceitful. We know from both the data and personal experience that many people engage in good works because it makes you feel good. It gives people a sense of purpose. It gives them a dopamine shot in the brain. It makes them feel morally superior to everyone else. And we all love that feeling. That's why climate extremists can block a road intersection with an ambulance trying to get through with a smile. Because while we might have to sacrifice one person, we can save the planet. But people who claim Christ do the exact same things. They can serve in children's church or foreign missions. They can put a smile in the midst of every service. Many of people think it's their works that prove their conversion. In Matthew 7:22, they are saying, Lord, Lord, didn't I cast out demons in your name? It's pretty impressive, by the way. How many of you have done that in your lifetime? Okay. Didn't I cast out demons in your name? Didn't I do mighty works in your name? Which goes back to the question, what's in the name? Is it just a title or is it a personal relationship? Is Jesus savior, a savior, or is he your savior? For it is not good works that save you. It's grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 makes it clearest. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Now does that mean... That there are no good works in Christianity, to quote Paul, by no means. Good works come forth out of a life with Jesus. To quote Reverend Lloyd-Jones again, 
This is why, for instance, in theology, the phrase faith and works is used. Faith is not merely intellectual assent to certain doctrines, the kind of belief that Jesus warned about earlier. It is commitment or personal trust. Thus, the phrase means that there must be a personal commitment. And then growing out of that, there must be good works. These are two oars of the ship that are meant to propel it forward. If only one oar is present, there will be trouble. Well, what now? As we've considered the words of the Lord, if we know that it's not about believing the right things, if, it's no, if we know it's not about doing the right things, how can we know? How can we know that we have a good relationship with God? And we can know, right? Well, we have to consider our salvation. Consider if we do indeed know the Lord. 2 Peter 1.10 actually calls us to do that. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. We're called to confirm our election. What are some ways to know if you have repented and believed? Look, obvious, this is a hard question. I said it in the prayer. I don't have a thermometer. I can't come up to you and it turn red or blue depending on the state of your soul. It's not how it works. This is something for you to consider as a believer. So I'm going to give you three things that I think will help. It's not exhaustive. I just like three. Okay? I think they summarize a lot. But hopefully this will help. One, have you grieved your sin? Have you grieved your sin? I was listening to apologist Sean McDowell this week. He recently wrote a book on faith deconstruction. So to write the book, he interviewed many people who had walked away from the faith of their childhood. And one of the questions, and I thought very wise to ask them, is this. He asked them, those who had walked away from the faith, in your faith journey, did you ever get to a place where you grieved your sin? In your faith journey, did you ever get to a place where you grieved your sin? Did you ever realize the depths of your own immorality? How evil thoughts, actions, and words are so prone to pop up in your heart many times over stupid, selfish, and unimportant things. For the vast majority of people, the vast majority of people that he asked this question of who had walked away from the faith, the answer was no. They had never got to a place in their lives where they actually grieved their sin. Hearers of the word this morning, have you ever got to a place in your life where you actually grieved your sin? Or is sin just something you do? If not, what are you actually saved from? When we talk about salvation, especially as I talk to people anytime, they typically answer the question of what they're saved from is primarily hell. That's an, that's an outcome. But you are not primarily saved from hell, you're primarily saved from sin. You know what I look forward to in heaven? Not sinning. Not rolling my ankle too, but not sinning. More than anything. I can't wait till I get to experience life 
without the temptation, without the desire, without those thoughts that pop into my head. And I'm like, where did that come from, right? I can't wait till I'm free from sin because that's what I'm saved from. Have you grieved over sin's influence in your life or do you just think you're fine? Second test. What motivates your good works? I have a lot of coaches in here. I love that because I'm a coach too, but we have a lot of coaches in here, so I'm going to use a coaching analogy, okay? Every year, I have to ask myself these questions. Why am I coaching? Why am I coaching? And I know it's a complex answer. I think it's probably a combination of these answers. Is it to hang out with my kids? It's part of it. I actually like him, okay? I like Piper. I want to hang out with him. Is it to look good in the community and build up my own reputation? Maybe. Is it because I love the game? Absolutely. Is it because you love to win? That's what motivates you. Not this season, but... Is it because you actually like kids or young men and women? It amazes me how many, not here, but how many coaches I've interacted with in life that actually hate the kids they're coaching. Why are you doing this to yourself? It's more common than you would hope. Is it a deep desire to help build up young people? Is it to glorify God in the way you coach? I have to ask this of myself every season, and I can promise you there are some seasons where I'm like, oh, 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 check yourself, right? We should all be asking those things of the good works that we engage in. What motivates your good works? What motivates it? We should be asking this question for many good works we're involved in. Because sin, because it's sin, creeps in so quickly. Selfish ambition can creep in so quickly. A high view of self can creep in so quickly. Forgetting God can happen so quickly. Church, what motivates your good works? What motivates your good works? Last test. Do you desire to spend time with God? Do you desire to spend time with God? Or do you treat him like a cold shower on a cold morning? Like you jump into Sunday service real quick to wake up, but you never actually enjoy it when you're here. We've talked about this idea before, but let's review it again. You see, part of discipleship is not just knowing the right thing. Part of it is heart change. We believe things that are more focused on the kingdom of darkness than the kingdom of light, and we desire God as he sanctifies us to change our heart in the right direction. It's moving it, right? 
We want not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh, Ezekiel eleven nineteen. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. But in our modern world, when we think of heart, we immediately think of emotionalism. And while emotions are involved in our heart language, emotions are not the core of our heart. Understand this. What makes us human is that we, you and I are primarily desirers. That's what gets us up in the morning. We, what we desire. What we desire is what moves us. It's what emotionally speaks to us. It's what propels us. It's what puts our feet on the floor after a, a good night's sleep. What we desire is what is Lord, Lord to us. Not just in title, but personally. There is only one Lord that can save you. The other lords of the world will either desire your destruction, they don't actually care about you, or are inadequate to meet the title. Right? Think of the ones that desire your destruction. Alcohol abuse, drug abuse, sugar abuse, all those things are marketed to us as the solution to all our problems. But once you're hooked, you're not getting out, and they'll probably kill you. Things that don't care about you that are Lord of your life. Ohio State Buckeye football team does not care about you. They don't. Or whatever team you follow. It, they don't care about you. Your favorite athlete has not thought about you this whole entire year. Not one time. They don't even know your name. But some of us treat the outcome of a game like it's Lord. Sports do not care about you. Your favorite athlete does not care about you. Don't let your life revolve around something that doesn't care about you. And then you have the lords that are inadequate to meet it. Your children and your spouse are good gifts from God, but they are not good gods. They are not designed to be Lord of your life. Do not put that weight on them. I have seen may, way too many spouses put the weight of Savior or Lord and Messiah on the other person, and that kills them. And I've unfortunately seen far too many parents put that weight on their children, thinking they are going to bring me the joy that I so seek in life. That will kill them. Don't do that to them. There is only one person that can carry the title of Lord because of who they are and what they have done, and that is the person of Jesus. Only one. Do you know him? Not just the title, but like personally. Have you looked at your sin and realized how awful it is? That because of your sin, you deserve the wrath of God. But however, God in his mercy offers you the free gift of salvation. Not by works so that no one can boast, but by the cross of Calvary. Jesus lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, so that you could be 
It was so that he could be the atoning sacrifice of sin for you. And when you give your life to God, when you make Jesus Lord of your life, when he becomes your Savior, your God, then he empowers you to live a life becoming of the kingdom of God. You begin, because of Jesus, to do the will of the Father. And if that is you, you will never hear, depart from me, I never knew you. But your future will lead you to, well done, good and faithful servant. May today be the day of salvation for those of you in here that do not know Jesus as your Savior. Do not put off calling out to him for salvation and acknowledging him as Lord. If you need to make that right today or reset your walk today, pray with me. And for those of you that you're assured of this, you know the Lord, pray for them right now. Bow your heads with me.